This is the MLW Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. This is a program brought to you by Front Row Material. As once again, you all know that we are back with another installment of Overbooked. This is going to be going over Chapter 4 of the Unauthorized Story of ECW. So where we left off last chapter is we saw that Eddie Gilbert had passed away at the end of Chapter 3. So moving into chapter four, things are going to be a little bit different here. So Paul is now firmly in ECW, but what's going to happen with that? Obviously, we know that he was talking with the Crockett's. Jimmy Crockett was wanting to start his World Wrestling Network. He wanted to go ahead and maybe work pseudo with ECW, kind of as a launching pad. What's going to happen with that? Are we going to see Paul kind of work both both companies, or is Paul eventually going to make a decision on this? So let's go here and let's find out what's going to happen. So we start off chapter four in January of 1994. As I alluded to earlier, Paul Heyman obviously was now the booker for ECW, and ECW still had an alliance, an affiliation, an association, whatever you want to refer to it as, with the NWA and Dennis Corluzzo. We'll find out later in this chapter uh, what uh, what really happened with that relationship, how working with Dennis Corluzzo went, and then obviously in Chapter 5, I'm just teasing this way ahead of time, what exactly happened, uh, in my opinion, on one of the most influential nights, not only in ECW history, but really wrestling at that time, what happened with Shane Douglas, so... But let's get back in here in chapter four. So we're early in the year in January. So Paul Heyman, now that he's Booker, wanted to make a pretty big impact right away. And the first show that he booked and he put together uh, for Todd Gordon was known as Ultra Clash. And he decided that he wanted to kick off the show pretty hot. So he had um, Ian Rotten and Jason McKnight, who obviously would become Ian and Axel Rotten. He had them going against a brand new tag team that nobody had really seen. And this tag team obviously would become known as the Public Enemy. But before we kind of go into who the Public Enemy is, how the Public Enemy came to be, I think we need to take a step backwards and we need to kind of talk about a little bit about both of these tag teams so you understand the importance and the significance of not only what this first match at Ultra Class was for Paul Heyman, but what it would do for ECW as a brand carrying them on. So when we talk about Public Enemy, Public Enemy was the first to many people's knowledge or recognition of a team that was, they broke down that fourth wall. They got in the crowd, they interacted with the crowd, they danced with the crowd. Nowadays you see that all the time. You know, back in the 90s we would see Diamond Dallas Page go out into the crowd, he would put the the symbol up for the diamond cutter. Now we see a lot of wrestlers that will come through the crowd. It's not uncommon anymore to see that. Obviously, we saw Sandman, who had an entrance. He would come through the audience. That in itself was groundbreaking as well. A lot of these things did originate back early in the early 90s, and specifically with ECW. Because when you look back at that time, the WWF and WCW, it was it was all production and everything was very much guardrailed off. They either had these elaborate stages or the ramps. Nobody really did a whole lot inside the audience. But ECW, once again, wanting to do something different, wanting to give wrestling fans a little bit of a different flavor of wrestling and make it more appealing that, man, I'm sitting over in this 10th row, but the action could literally be right in front of me at any moment in time. So the public enemy, um, they brought in this vibrant feeling of excitement and energy. And Paul Heyman kind of knew early in 1994 what was going to go on in society. And I think that's the big thing that Paul was able to do. He realized what was going to be popular. And he went ahead and he kind of infused that into his product. He infused that into his stars. 
And so Public Enemy was going to be this hip-hop group that would sing, that would dance, that would rap, but they would also be super, super aggressive and violent in the ring. So he envisioned, when he was coming up with the concept of Public Enemy, that they would be this disenfranchised part of Generation X. And uh, one of the members of the group, Ted Petty, which would be known as Rocco Rock, for years he had been on the independent circuit, and he was first under a leopard mask, uh, which actually was a takeoff and a spoof off of Tiger Mask, uh, later the Cheetah Kid. But Petty was ready to basically get out of wrestling at that point. He'd been on the independent scene, never really got a big push. Uh, the politics, the road, all of that kind of stuff was starting to get on his nerves. So at that point in time, he was like, man, I'm, I'm pretty much done. So the idea that Paul Heyman had for Flyboy Rocco Rock was a rapper kind of like Snoop Dogg, who, you know, he wore the shades, he wore the, the certain ring attire, he used a certain language, he interacted with the audience, he really made himself indelible to the wrestling fans. So Heyman believed that if he could get him to be able to connect with the audience, that he believes he would at least have one character that would be very successful. So now let's talk about Johnny Grunge. So Johnny Grunge, who also had been on the independent scene for quite a while, and he was actually uh, an adversary of Flyboy Rocco Rock, and they had wrestled each other numerous times. So Paul brings him into ECW as well and booked them together as being this over-the-top, ridiculous characters, except for the fact that they were super violent, that they rapped, that they could get over with the crowd and that they left an indelible impression on wrestling fans. Specifically, we're going to give another quote from John Bailey here. He said, I remember one of the first matches uh, with Public Enemy, and I knew things were going to be great. He says, when someone in the crowd handed them a frying pan and they used it. So let's kind of talk about that for a second. We didn't really see, or I mean, outside of plants that were in the audience with WCW or the WWF, even in that point in time in the early to mid-90s, we still never saw people using the types of weapons that ECW would go on to use. You would see frying pans, you would see Nintendos, you would see VCRs, you would see a crutch or someone's cane. You saw somebody who brought in a cast that they had recently gotten taken off of them. There were things that you would see in the ECW arena that really were reminiscent of almost like a fight club. You know, before that movie even came out, like... It was so ultra-real, it felt like it was a fight club. It didn't really have the feel of professional wrestling. It felt like there was a bunch of guys that were in there, they were pitted against each other, and they just beat the hell out of each other until somebody evidently just couldn't keep going on, and uh, they would lose, and the winner, which I don't even know if you can call him a winner at that point with the broken bones and blood all over their face, would walk away victorious. So, at this time, Paul Heyman, who had made a big push to get, obviously, ECW on television, he was also working really hard to get them on MSG's network, along with other TV outlets, Paul was starting to realize that part of the branding and marketing behind his company, obviously, it was going to stand out because it was going to be ultra-aggressive, ultra-violent, he was going to push the envelope with sexuality, but he needed something else. He wanted to get away from the concept of being considered Eastern Championship Wrestling. It was still ECW, but it was still technically known as Eastern Championship Wrestling. And he was like, yeah, this is basically not going to work. If we are Eastern, I don't really feel like we can get that fevered frenzy with fans if we don't have a really good catch name. So, moving on. Uh, the NWA and ECW tied up again, and they went ahead and they did the second part of Bloodfest, which was, like I said, a two-part show. Um, obviously, October 1st and October 2nd of 1993 is when the events took place. And um, Dennis Corluzzo really thought that this two-part night was going to be a very monumentous evening when it came to the, the resurgence 
resurgence of the NWA. Unfortunately, that really didn't turn out to be the case. So, NWA ECW teamed up. They had many, many matches. One of the big matches for the night uh, ECW had was Sabu versus the Tasmaniac. So before he was just straight Taz, he was a Tasmaniac. He had hair. Um, he looked like a caveman. I mean, if, if that's the best way I can describe it. Definitely go on YouTube or if you have the WWE Network, you can go back and you can look at matches from ECW during this time frame. You'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, Taz definitely had a different look back then. And we're going to talk about how he went from the Tasmaniac caveman type of style to the more Olympic style wrestler wearing the singlet, shaved head, all of that. We're going to get to that. But the two faced each other in their first ECW match, part of Bloodfest Part 1, and uh, which was on October 1st. And Sabu won that match. Uh, and it made him a huge impact. Uh, on the audience, but it also made a huge impact on his manager, which was Paul Heyman, which was going once again by the ring name of Paul E. Dangerously. So the thing about Sabu that some wrestling fans may or may not be aware of is that Sabu at that time did not come out to the ring as he does now with the music and the pointing to the sky, all of that. That was not part of his gimmick back then. So Paul had many meetings with Sabu and said, listen, I have an idea for you know, the way we want to book your character and your ring entrance. So Heyman had been working on Sabu for a while and said, we want to put you on this almost like a dolly and you're going to have these chains wrapped around you and you're going to have this Hannibal Lecter mask over your face and you're going to get wheeled to the ring. And then when we take off the change, you're going to go crazy. You're going to jump the guardrail. You're going to scare the fans. You're going to hop back over the guardrail. You're going to throw chairs. You're just, you're just going to go crazy. And it's going to really kind of set the tone for whenever Sabu comes out, you don't know what's going to happen. Whether he's going to go straight to the ring or whether he's going to threaten uh, fans or, or whatever. But... Uh, Sabu was not really on board with this for the simple fact that Sabu had gone on to say later in interviews that by the time I got unshackled and I'm running around and I'm scaring people and I'm throwing things, he goes, you have no idea how tiring that is. Then I got to go ahead and get in the ring and wrestle my match. So basically he said, Paul, I'm not doing this again. Paul said, listen, I'll give you a little bit more money. Do it one more time. Never have to do it again. So Sabu obviously said, fine, I'll, I'll take the money. He did it a second time. And Paul loved it, and it, it got over with the audience. But once again, Sabu liked the money but didn't like the concept, the fact that it took forever to do this almost a full performance before the match even starts. And he comes back after the match and says, Paul, I'm not doing it again. No way. Paul throws even more money at him, says, one more time, do it, never have to do it again. So he did it for the final time. That was it. He was never going to do it again. But if you want to see what that looks like, because trust me, guys, it is something that you have to see to believe. And I can actually say after I saw these clips on YouTube, what Paul was going after, because the optics, the presentation of Sabu when he was wheeled out on this dolly or stretcher, whatever you want to call it, you know, and he was kind of tied up, shackled up, whatever, and then let go. It was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing, but it was interesting because it was almost reminiscent of the Ultimate Warrior. When the Warrior would come out, he would run down the aisle. And if we remember, you know, the ring in some of these bigger arenas that WWE was in in the 80s and early 90s, there was a long way from the curtain all the way to the ring. And he would run the whole length of that. Then he would run around the ring a few times. Then he would shake the ropes and then he would get in the ring and run the ropes. And by the time he was done with his entrance... He was already exhausted, so by the time his match came up, it didn't last very long. So, in some ways, I can understand where Sabu is coming from, but once again, much like the Warrior, much like this idea Paul had, it was very, very entertaining. But um, we'll get back into that a little bit later. Um, so, we go on to the next night, which was October 2nd of 93. Sabu uh, came out, and he won again. So think about this. So Sabu comes out and beats Taz. 
night one, which is a great match, ultra-violent match. He comes out night two of Bloodfest and ends up beating Shane Douglas and one wins the ECW championship. So, Heyman was definitely looked at in the eyes of wrestling fans as, as, as kind of like this savant when it came to creating this company and creating these characters such as Public Enemy and Sabu and obviously you had the Tasmaniac and you had Ian and Axel Rotten. Um, so you had a lot of guys right now and that's just a short list of people who were really over and people wanted to come to see. They wanted to pay money to come see them. So Paul was now starting to see that, man, if I really build this thing up the right way, I can make this a profitable company. And I think that's where Paul had the vision where I think others just didn't. Meaning like a Dennis Corluzzo just didn't. You know, Dennis wasn't really focused on creating stars. Dennis was focused on bringing stars in. Dennis wanted to make entertaining shows, but it wasn't necessarily profitable. Paul was taking guys that had not really been known in the States, and he made them into superstars. So we kind of took a, a little pause from the, the two-night spectacle, and I want to talk a little bit about, when we talked about Public Enemy, let's talk about Ian and Axel Rotten. So Axel Rotten... Uh, also known as Brian Knighton. And if you want to see a really good interview, if you interview or if you go to YouTube and type in Axel Rotten shoot interview, it's really good. Um, there's actually two of them. There's one of them where he talks uh, solely, and it's a documentary about his health issues, his life in and out of ECW, what happened to him, how he got clean and sober. And then there's one where it's him and... Raven and they're going back and forth and it's uh it's it's crazy but to hear both of them talk specifically Axel Rotten you can see that this this guy was a smart dude I mean he knew wrestling he understood the the psychology of wrestling so he wrestled in a small independent groups all over the east coast um by the time he made his way to ECW he was he was a lot different so he was one of those guys who Wrestled, wrestled, wrestled. I believe he actually helped put on some shows as well. Well, the way that they actually ended up getting to know each other was Axel Rotten was actually a fan of uh, what Paul was doing, or of Paul, I should say, what he was doing in WCW. Well, Paul was on his way out of WCW, and Axel was kind of an undercard guy, uh, whether you want to call him enhancement, jobber, whatever you want to call him. So they were both kind of on their way out from WCW at that time and they kind of struck up a, a relationship and they started talking to each other. And Axel would go on to say, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but you know, when you're down south in WCW, you, a match could take for you know several minutes, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And he goes, you could take a rest hold every couple minutes and kind of talk and plan what you're going to do next. He goes, when I got to ECW, that was a completely different ball game. Fans didn't want to see that traditional wrestling that they had been fed for years, where it was a slow match. They wanted to see constant action, and he said he quickly realized that the bar was going to have to be raised, even in his own game, when it came to the way he was going to perform in the ring, because there was going to be no slowing down. The fans would be on your ass if they felt that you were trying to take a shortcut, um, or that you were cheating them out of something. So I thought that was interesting. Terry Funk also kind of piggybacks that sentiment, and he says, the fans of ECW at that time were very demanding. The fans created a set of expectations for the wrestlers. And uh, he said, we all felt like we needed to exceed them. So that's interesting as well. So once again, you come from a culture, whether it's WCW, and I'm not saying WCW at that time um, under Barnett was a bad company, but you didn't see the constant action, the constant just fast-paced back and forth that you would see in ECW with a lot of these performers. And I think that's what people wanted. Just like anything, people like a change. They like things that are different. And even if it doesn't succeed, they like to see that you tried. Because if they see that you tried, at least they're going to give you some level of credit. But if you keep feeding them that same thing, 
they're just going to say, well, I'm going to walk away from this because why the hell am I going to watch this anymore? I'm getting sick of it. So Axel Rotten actually uh, co-hosted a show he had. He had a radio show in Baltimore in the 90s from uh, 10 a.m. to noon on every Saturday. And he talked to a lot of wrestling fans on his show. He loved to talk to the independent wrestling fans. And he himself noticed that the independent wrestling scene started to heat up. So when it came to them coming into ECW, Paul basically said, hey, look, how about you come on into the ECW arena? I want to talk to you. Uh, later, um, Axel's longtime trainee and longtime tag team partner, Ian, um, who was running shows in Maryland, got brought in. They casted them together as a tag team. And they were going to be brothers. He named him Axel. So now you had Ian and Axel Rotten. So you would start to see the, okay, so we got this tag team division that's really heating up. I got the public enemy over here who are super hot and super over. I have Ian and Axel Rotten who are going to go that extreme level again. I can get them over as well. So it started to, Paul put the pieces together to start building this tag team division. And a lot of people believed in 93, 4, 5, 6 that ECW had the best tag team division in wrestling, period. I mean, they were really, really good. So Axel and Ian realized that it was going to be pretty bloody, but they were in for it. And Eastern Championship Wrestling, or ECWTV, decided that they needed to find a announcer. They needed to find somebody who they could officially deem as their announcer. Obviously, it was musical chairs with who was going to be the announcer. So Joey Styles is finally pegged as the announcer for ECW. And some of the things that wrestling fans really liked about Joey was that he got along with the guys, but Joey had this sarcastic way about him, and it really appealed to Paul. Joey would kind of take shots at WCW and the WWF, and fans started to pick up on his humor, and that you know he saw them as the underdog, and that they were kind of the the stepchild in the wrestling family. But they went with it. They embraced it. They they agreed that they were not flashy. They agreed they weren't for prime time players. They they agreed that they didn't have the the great ring attire, or that they wrestled in a bingo hall. But what the one thing ECW wrestlers hung their hat on that WCW guys couldn't do for the most part, and what WWF guys couldn't do for the most part, was the fact that they could go out there and let it all hang out. And that they were given the creative freedom as a performer to do what they wanted to do to tell their story. And that they weren't shackled with all right, where well, you only got you know X amount of minutes or you need to follow this script when you're reading this promo or you need to make sure that you do X, Y, and Z. So it definitely gave the wrestlers a feeling that ECW, they, they, ECW was a part of them and they were a part of ECW. It wasn't a company that was owned and that they just worked for them. It was, it was a, a togetherness, if you will. Well, with that being said, uh, on November 23rd, 1993, we were talking about uh, the WWE. Vince McMahon was indicted on federal steroid charges. And it was interesting because WCW was going through some problems as well. So as McMahon at this time is going through fighting the federal government, ECW is on the rise. They're creating these new stars. They got new a tag team division building up. WCW had a big, big problem on their hands. So I'm sure you've heard about this before, but Sid Vicious was set to beat Vader to become the WCW champion. Unfortunately, he got himself fired. Yeah, Sid Vicious got himself fired after he got into a brawl overseas in England with Arn Anderson where the infamous pair of scissors was used. So... If you want to know more about this brawl that happened in the scissors and what happened, you know, both guys end up going to the hospital. It was vicious. You definitely can look it up on YouTube. There are tons of stories that will cover that. I'm not really going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the whole fact was Paul was succeeding. ECW was really starting to come about. McMahon had a very uncertain future ahead of him and WCW was just kind of a train wreck at that point. 
They didn't have a lot of great leadership backstage. And now they have this situation, this big scandal about the fight that had gone on between Arn and Sid. So as we kind of wind down 1993, ECW events were still not quite making money to become profitable. They were still in the red, but a lot of hardcore fans were really starting to follow them as uh, they were on the UHF cable stations in the Northeast, in that tri-state region. Um, They also had huge fans that were loyal as far as tape trading had gone. And we haven't really talked about tape trading a whole lot, but tape trading in, I would say, 93, 4, 5, and even in 96 was a big thing because when a promotion isn't on national television, you don't really get a chance to see them. So if you don't live in the Northeast, you're not going to know really what ECW is unless you read one of the aftermags, unless you subscribe to Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Keep in mind, guys, internet, I mean... Even if it was around, it was super, super, super infancy. You really couldn't find out anything about who was doing what in other promotions unless you read it through a magazine. And by the time the magazine came out, it was already old news. So that's where the tapes would definitely be following each other. People would tape them and they would send them to each other. So that's really the the first uh, distribution, if you will, of what ECW was. ECW finally found... uh, Their home, which was a bingo hall that was christened the ECW Arena. So let's talk a little bit about the ECW Arena. I actually could do a whole podcast just on the history and the lineage of the ECW Arena. Uh, John Bailey, ECW superfan, went and said, even in the wintertime, it was 150 degrees in there. We got there early to set up chairs in the afternoon, and it was nice and cool, but then they let the people in, and the temperature shot up. I don't ever recall a time when I ever froze in there. Now, that's his opinion. Some other people have gone on to say, in the wintertime, the lack of heat in the building made it almost subarctic. Uh, in any event, nobody was ever comfortable. Uh, ECW fans they didn't seem to care whether it was hot, whether it was cold. They just wanted to come out and see a really good product. Now, something else that set ECW aside was the fact that ECW wrestlers sometimes also came out after the show was over to go ahead and talk with the fans, shake their hands, thank them for coming to the show. Um, The Triple Threat and Francine would go out there and they were even the top heels in the company, but they would take time to talk with people and talk to fans who were dedicated enough to stick around to the end. Francine uh, said taking time with the fans after the shows uh, just came with the territory. She went on to say, the fans were always very important to me because without them, I wouldn't have a job. She said, I tried to take time for everyone. ECW fans were the greatest and most loyal fans in the world. So, once again, WCW and the WWF at the time were not doing that because it was that whole kayfabe was still very much alive at that point. And, you know, heels, depending on who the booker was or the promoter, didn't want you going out there and doing anything but acting nasty towards the fans or they only wanted the baby faces to go out there and take the photos. That was a big thing as well because a lot of independent shows the heels did not get a chance to go out there and set up their merchandise tables during intermission. It was all baby faces because the promoter's vision was, well, who's going to want a picture or an autograph with a bad guy? So I found out through talking with some people and also talking to Jerry and talking to Mikey, I've heard some stories where you know, some heels might get a little bit more money for that night to kind of make up for the fact that they didn't get to sell any merchandise or gimmicks uh, during intermission. So, as we move in to February of 1994, there was a big show, a big show, and a lot of ECW fans are familiar with it. This one was called The Night the Line Was Crossed. Now, this drew almost 1,300 fans in the ECW arena, and it was headlined with a match that would really kind of set the standard for, if you want to call it a gimmick match, it was a a three-way match or a triangle match or a three-way dance. Now, it took a long time for WCW and the WWF to finally come to terms with what this type of match was. But, man, it's really ingenious. But it's also a very difficult match to pull off as well. 
I've heard comments from both Terry Funk and Shane Douglas also made the comments that, you know, if you have three guys in a match, it's you have to make sure you're all on the same page. You got to make sure everybody's synced up together because it can be awkward. It can be different than what it is in a traditional one-on-one match. Well, the match went 60 minutes to a draw, and the the point of the whole thing was it was so good. It was a match that so many wrestling fans have even gone on today and said it's one of their favorite matches of all time. And people were in the audience and they gave a standing ovation. Let's 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 pause for a second here. Wrestling fans stood up, clapped, and gave a standing ovation to this match. This was amazing. Sabu, Terry Funk, Shane Douglas went out there and tore it up. Shane Douglas really was the only guy who went basically the full 60 minutes. And Shane did a great job with carrying that. And, and that would kind of lead us down to which Shane would soon become the franchise. So, But that's a, a slight tease. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it was a big one. And if you want to see The Night the Line Was Crossed, I do believe that's on the WWE Network. You can check that one out. Great match. A lot of things that had been done in that match were not seen in probably until the late 90s, early 2000s when it came to, to both companies here. So by the time the match ended, uh, Shane Douglas went back and he cut some promos and he met with Paul and he talked to him and they were basically trying to find out, man, how can we, how can we parlay this match and we can give you the rub and we can really give you a little bit more positioning as this, this guy, this main guy, this young, good looking, blonde haired guy. And it was the concept that Shane would be this arrogant persona, and it was during the time that the NFL was actually introduced a concept called franchising a player, which means obviously you could designate one player every year to be franchised, which means that you would sign them and you could keep their services. And so it was like, hmm, the franchise, that's interesting. So... That's the way Paul went with it. And so they decided that they were going to do that. And Shane Douglas said, man, he goes, I'm the franchise. And Shane said, yeah, you're going to come out with like the sports jersey and you're just going to be this this cocky asshole. And then Shane comes back and says, well, wait a minute, if I'm the franchise, shouldn't people be wearing my jersey or my shirt? And Paul's eyes just lit up. And he, he knew at that point that Shane definitely got the idea of what was going on. So the franchise was born. Uh, Shane Douglas was looked at through the eyes of the wrestling fans as the guy. And the franchise would on would go on to say that, you know, I'm the captain of the football team. And I would be the guy who would fuck your girlfriend just because I could. So the franchise took the next step the following month. And he actually captured... The ECW title from Terry Funk in a match in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. But wait a minute, Mike. You just said Shane Douglas won the ECW championship, but you didn't tell me how he won the match. Well, let's go into that. So in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, Shane Douglas teamed up with Public Enemy and Mr. Hughes to defeat Terry Funk, Road Warrior Hawk, and Kevin Sullivan and the Tasmaniac in a war games type of match. So here's how the stipulations were working in this match. Each participant, each competitor in the match, had to put something on the line in the match. So let's go down the list here and tell you what everybody would do if they had gotten pinned or lost. Sullivan, or Tasmaniac, lost the fall. They would have to stop being a tag team. Road Warrior Hawk, if he lost, would mean that he would no longer be able to use the moniker Road Warrior. And Terry Funk said he would put up his ECW championship. If Shane Douglas had been beat in the match, he would have to shave his head. If anybody had pinned either one of the public enemy, they would lose the tag team titles. And if Mr. Hughes lost, he would have to put his manager, Jason, in the cage for five minutes with all four opponents. So let's go and find out how this whole thing goes down. Well, to make a long story short, Shane Douglas goes on to win the ECW championship. But how did he do this? Well, Shane ended up suffocating Terry Funk to the point where he ended up pinning Terry Funk. So a lot of fans have been asking over the years, 
Well, how did that concept of that ending of that match come about? Well, Terry Funk tells a story about how he pitched the idea to WCW Brass that he would beat Ric Flair by putting a bag over his head and suffocating him and then pinning his shoulders to the mat. However, after the idea was brought to WTBS, they decided to kill the angle because of the use of a plastic bag. At that time, it was not looked upon as something that they wanted their audience to see. I mean, I get it as well. I mean, putting a bag over somebody's face, especially when you have a younger audience watching, probably doesn't exactly put across the best image. So Shane Douglas is the new champion. He's also got the new trademark, the franchise. Shane did some things that were really interesting, much like we talked about with Public Enemy, where they would be cutting these promos and they would be interacting with the fans. And ECW talent was really given a lot of creative control on what they wanted to say, how they wanted to position their character. There was a lot of freedom that was given to them. Well, that same freedom was given to Shane as well. So Shane had many meetings with Paul and sat down and talked to him, and, and he was legitimately frustrated with the wrestling business. Shane actually was wanting to give up wrestling altogether um, and, and basically move on from it, but he was wooed back into ECW, and he said, you know what, Paul, I want to express how I feel about the wrestling business as a heel. So many of his promos were about how people couldn't carry him and how he was held down and a lot of other guys were held down. And he specifically went after Ric Flair a lot in his promos. And, and if you want to even see that, you can go onto YouTube and you can actually witness some of those promos that he cut. And he was uh, not a huge fan of the Nature Boy. So the franchise Shane Douglas is the ECW champion. He just got done having a great match right there with all those competitors. ECW delivered in many ways. They delivered with giving the fans the matches that they wanted. They delivered by giving them the entertainment that they wanted. They delivered by giving them mixtures of different wrestling styles. We're going to get into that even more here. So as we're moving on in the timeline here, Jimmy Crockett reaches back out to Paul Heyman, wants to kind of get a final answer from Paul on his involvement with World Wrestling Network. And Paul basically says that uh, he doesn't want to do it. He's going to stick with ECW at this point in time. Todd Gordon has given him the, the full control of creative and booking things, and he was very happy with that. And Crockett then wanted to talk to Todd Gordon, and he wanted to talk to Todd about getting ECW and maybe the NWA working together with the World Wrestling Network. Gordon declined that as well. It was a situation at the time where I feel like Jimmy Crockett was trying to do anything he could to kind of make his World Wrestling Network uh, viable and to somehow bring some stability and I hate always to use the word credibility because I don't always think that's fair because the World Wrestling Network with Jimmy Crockett had stars. I mean, there wasn't any doubt about that. They had guys, but it was a situation where it just didn't fit. And the conversations that Todd would have with Jimmy Crockett, you know, he would, Jimmy didn't really seem to understand Sabu's psychotic style, and he definitely didn't understand the rap music that the public enemy was doing. He didn't understand the super violent stuff that they were also doing in the ring. And I think it was a situation of, it was just two generations that, that couldn't get together on the same page. Crockett was very much back in the Georgia Championship Wrestling days, at least in his mind. And Paul Heyman definitely was not that. He was the antithesis of Georgia Championship Wrestling and what became WCW. So when they finally sat down and kind of hashed it all out, it was a younger versus older vision on what wrestling should be and with the direction that pop culture was going into as well. And we keep using that phrase pop culture because, I mean, when you look at what Paul Heyman was doing, you know, Snoop Dogg was big, rap was big. Uh, the word extreme was big. The ultraviolence was big. You know, he, he was tapping into them using all different genres of music when wrestlers would come out. That was a big thing as well. So Paul would, would even kind of allude to the fact that Jimmy was kind of out of touch 
with what was going on here and that it just didn't make good business sense to merge the companies together at that time. So Paul and Todd say no to the World Wrestling Network and Jimmy Crockett. Obviously, they're still doing some things with Dennis Corluzzo, but also a relationship with WCW started to blossom here. So we started to see talent kind of going back and forth between ECW and WCW. So at one point in time, you even saw Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton show up on an ECW show in April of 1994. Another WCW, Nancy Woman Sullivan, uh, made her ECW debut at When Worlds Collide in May of 94. Uh, after losing a Singapore Kane match at Tommy Cairo and Peaches, the Sandman and Woman destroyed Cairo and Peaches, uh, which obviously Peaches was a Sandman's real-life wife named Lori, and they forged an in-ring alliance. So, But Nancy was not the only Sullivan working in Philadelphia at the time. WCW Slambury pay-per-view drew 4,800 fans, and it featured her husband, Kevin Sullivan, who was teaming with Cactus Jack, who ended up beating the Nasty Boys to become the tag team champions. Now, during this time, the crowds in ECW were getting more steady and more consistent, and they were getting a lot larger. People were waiting around the block to try to get inside the building, and the company was getting a lot of serious attention, like I said earlier, from a lot of promotions all over the world. So, but right before WCW's Slamboree, ECW actually had another situation come up. Joey Styles ended up leaving the company. So they finally get the TV deals. They're trying to get on MSG Network. They're having bigger crowds. They've got the arena. They got a relationship with WCW. Um, you know, they're sharing talent back and forth. And then all of a sudden, Joey Styles leaves. Now, I don't have a whole lot of details as to what happened, as to why Joey Styles left. I'm going to look into that a little bit further. I am going to really try hard, and I mean this, to try to get Joey to come on the program with me and Mikey and Jerry and kind of talk about his experiences and times in ECW and what that was like. Anyway, it wasn't much longer. Uh, it was only a few weeks before ECW finally were able to lure him back, and the big reason why ECW wanted Joey Styles to come back was they wanted him to call the match between Cactus Jack and Sabu that happened at Hostile City Showdown. So to get into that match, uh, Cactus dominated most of the match, but ended up Sabu won in front of the hometown fans. Now, here's the thing that really gets a lot of attention from historical wrestling fans. Cactus Jack gave an emotional interview about how upset he was about losing his dream match against Sabu. To show how strongly he felt about losing that match, he took the ECW tag team belt that he had previously won with Kevin Sullivan against the Nasty Boys at Slamboree in Philadelphia, and he spit on it and he threw it to the ground. That definitely did not go over well in WCW. The higher-ups uh, definitely were not happy with what he did. When Kevin Sullivan finally was reached to talk about how he felt that angle when he said, and I quote, I definitely don't think that that was the right thing to do politically, Kevin said. I knew it was political suicide. I also understood why he did it, but I knew there would be serious consequences. And the thing about ECW and specifically Cactus Jack is the fact that I feel like you got a different version of Mick Foley as Cactus Jack in ECW, and you got a different version of Cactus Jack when he was in WCW. And then you got a third version of Cactus Jack when he was in WWE. So let's kind of like kind of go the the timetable here. So obviously in WCW, Cactus kind of did Cactus like things, if you will, um, but he still had some level of restraint that was used. Cactus in ECW basically did and said what he wanted because that was the culture that you know Paul cultivated with all of his talent to be yourself. And what have we learned as far as wrestling fans is what kind of personality gets over. It's your own personality just amplified. And that's really what Cactus was. Now, when you go back and you look at what Cactus did in WWE, it's a lot different. And I don't want to say it was a watered-down version of Cactus Jack, but it was definitely a much more censored version of Cactus Jack. And I think in some ways some hardcore wrestling fans were kind of peeved about that as far as it wasn't really him. It was more of a, 
a version that the WWE wanted to portray him as. And he did, you know, have a great match at MSG with Triple H, which I thought was really good. I think they tried to give back to him when they did the Mankind character. He did a lot more crazy things. But at the end of the day, it, it was a different version of Foley in all three companies, which we will end up looking at further as we go along in our story. Continuing down our timeline, ECW, like I said earlier, is still working with NWA and Dennis Corluzzo. And there was a decision that was made that Shane Douglas would become the NWA champion. And Douglas initially didn't like the idea because, you know, he was only earning 150 a night to be champion. And he needed more than that. And I agree with Shane at that point. You know, I know ECW at that time probably didn't have the financial resources early on to pay a lot, but I mean, Shane has a lot of experience. Shane worked for WWF, Shane worked for WCW, you know, Shane is a seasoned professional and I think the money just didn't work out. And I think that's why Shane just said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. But as we move on, we're going to find out that Shane is going to be lured into doing this. Uh, so we're going to catch up with that. But the next two months in the ECW arena uh, contained key moments in ECW history, such as in July of 94, the public enemy defeated the Funk Brothers, Terry and Dory, in a barbed wire match. Now, the win over the legends gave the public enemy the credibility that in Heyman's minds they not only needed, but they deserved. Uh, in a quote from Terry Funk, he would go on to say, I would never try to say that I made them overnight. But I think that match did make a did make them to a very large extent. Funk said it was something Paulie asked us to do on their behalfs and on the behalf of ECW as a company, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. So, when you look at what wrestling really is, and you know, we often hear the phrase of passing the torch and doing the right thing for business. And some of the older wrestlers giving the rub to some of the new wrestlers and, and maybe giving them an opportunity to shine. I think what Terry and Dory did was awesome. And I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Terry's not wrong. I mean, it did it did play a huge part in making Public Enemy credible because think about it from this perspective. You don't only have... Public Enemy, who's a hardcore team, but you have, you know, Terry Funk, who is known as the legend of hardcore. I mean, his matches over in Japan are are legendary for FMW, and if you've never seen a Terry Funk FMW match, I highly recommend you go over and you go onto YouTube and you pull that up because it is some of the craziest stuff you'll ever see. Like, I like hardcore wrestling. I do. I don't mind the violent side of wrestling. But the C4 and the explosives and all this kind of stuff, never thought in my wildest imagination that I would ever see anything like that. But once again, you can check it out for yourself and you can decide. Another interesting ECW historical moment came inside that match after the bell had finally rang. If you all remember the infamous Terry Funk chair uh calling from the fans well that's when this happened so terry funk after the match was over ecw chants were going on terry raises his hand that he wants a chair well it wasn't just a chair that came in it was 80 in total that uh covered the ring for many wrestling fans that is kind of the epitome of that that shot right there you know when, when you see that of what ecw really was it was just one of those chaotic helter-skelter type of promotions that when you show up to an event, you never know what's going to happen. So moving on in our storyline here, um, about a week after that happened, uh, the McMahons actually went ahead and were acquitted in the steroid trial, and a big sigh of relief was over the WWF. But because of that, uh, WCW had an opportunity to go ahead and steal a little bit of their thunder, no pun intended, by signing longtime employee Hulk Hogan. So WWE, you know, swerves a major obstacle. WCW lands Hulk Hogan. ECW is still doing really, really well. 
So in September of 94, ECW decided that they needed to, and Paul Heyman, needed to go ahead and get some more talent. They wanted to stock up on some more. Because they had a relationship with WCW, obviously there was some talent that were made available to them. One of them was Too Cold Scorpio. Another one that came across was Dean Malenko. And ECW now started to do something new. So you had your hardcore, you had your violence. But now with the Two Cold Scorpio, now with the Dean Malenko, you're getting guys who, the high flyers, the more technical wrestlers, you're starting to incorporate a brand new genre of wrestling into ECW. So Paul not only was trying to make ECW a unique commodity, but he was now starting to diversify his lineup so he could not only appeal to the hardcore fans, but he could also appeal to some of the fans that might not necessarily be all into the blood and gore. So, with that being said, Eastern Championship Wrestling and the National Alliance decided to make a major announcement. They were going to be holding a championship tournament to crown the next NWA champion, and the face of the alliance, which would be the NWA and ECW. Once again, that decision was decided on Shane Douglas, as we talked about just moments before. And it was interesting because that night would, you know, we talked about the pay-per-view the night the line was crossed. Well, I almost feel like that could also be used for this. This was the night that will go down in history as maybe or most likely the defining moment of what ECW would become. ECW was rebelish. ECW did things their own way. ECW walked to their own beat. They loved their fans. The fans loved them. But ECW was all about the shock factor. And as we get into chapter five, we find out how's that relationship going to work with Dennis Corluzzo? How is Todd Gordon going to feel about working with Dennis long-term? How does Shane feel about the situation? And what does Paul Heyman have up his sleeve once again to shock the wrestling world? Find out all about that and a whole lot more the next time we sit down and we go into Chapter 5. But right now, that's going to do it for Chapter 4 here on Overbooked. If you're enjoying what we're doing, please, by all means, go over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Leave us some comments. We always like to hear from the listeners and what they're liking, what they're not liking. What are some things you'd like to hear us talk about? So that's going to do it. If you want to hit me up on social media and continue this discussion, I'd love to do it. My handle on Twitter is at Mike Freeland, all together, M-I-K-E-F-R-E-L-A-N-D. All right, I'll catch you next time with Chapter 5.